We are in a sermon series right now on the book of James, and today we come to James uh, chapter 2. Before we get to the reading of the scripture, I just very quickly want to send a a shout out and a thank you to Ellen Odegaard, who um, sent me a a podcast that was really helpful in my kind of understanding of of this text. And so thank you, Ellen. Um, If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to James chapter 2. I do want to give you a little heads up that this morning um, we had reached out to our uh, sister Julia Carlson and asked if she'd read the text. And she will be reading this morning from the message translation. So if, if you would prefer to just listen to the words, because the translation is a little bit different than um, the one we use here typically on a Sunday morning, feel free to do that. But if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do that now, and we will hear uh, James, a portion of chapter 2, read by our friend Julia. James 2, 1-13, the message translation. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house and either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends. Isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty who exploit you, who use the courts to rob you blind? Aren't they the ones who scorn the new name Christian used in your baptisms? You do well when you complete the royal rule of scriptures. Love others as you love yourself. But if you play up to these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand convicted by it. You can't pick and choose in these things, specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring others. The same God who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but go ahead and murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. Thank you, Julia. And may God bless the reading of God's word. And would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you please open our minds, open our hearts to hear what you might have for us, your Holy Spirit that speaks to us and empowers us. Thank you for your word the scriptures that you've given to us graciously to help us know what it is that Jesus hopes for. Insofar as my words um, can communicate that today, God, may they be heard. Insofar as they don't, may my words fall to the ground. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the precious one. Amen. And you may be seated. In Genesis chapter 1, 
uh, one of the things that God does again and again is to separate. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, you know God separates the light from the darkness. God separates the waters below and the waters above. God separates water and land. And, and all of this kind of distinction, separation, brings definition and order and ultimately allows for life to flourish on this planet. And the life itself is also an expanse of diversity, right? There are fish and birds and animals and people. And even the first people, God distinguishes between male and female. Even in chapter 2, we see that with the creation of Eve. If we fast forward through the whole Bible and go to Revelation at the very end, if we go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we get another picture of this diversity before God's throne. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that could not be counted was there. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples, every language, standing before the throne, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a vision that is. What we see in Scripture from beginning to end points to this great project humanity that God is involved in. And it is a project that we see in Revelation most clearly even, this uh, beauty of diversity, beauty of difference, a vision of full and complete inclusion and equality before the throne of God. Every nation. Lines of nationality recognized and represented. Every tribe Lines of difference, lines of different values represented, lines of different ways of thinking represented, dare I say it, lines of different political thinking represented. Every people, cultural difference, ethnic difference, what we might call racial difference, all represented there before God's throne. Every tongue. Every language, Spanish, English, Swahili, the ancient Semitic languages, the ancient Romantic languages, Germanic, Sub-Saharan, go on and on and on. Every language before the throne, praising God. Uh, If you know me, you know that sometimes God speaks to me when I mow the lawn. I look out the window, Tony, I see your lawnmower. Maybe that's a sign, I don't know. And one day I was mowing my lawn, and I really got the sense that God was speaking to me, and the Holy Spirit said, Abraham, why do you suppose there are seven billion people on the planet? Later I would think to myself, because your command, be fruitful and multiply, is the one command we haven't broken. But I said, I, you know, O oh Lord, 
And the Lord spoke to me and said, because the way I want to relate to my creation and the people I've made takes more than seven billion lives to do. I want all peoples, all tribes, every ethnicity. I want to relate to a multifarious number of cultures and peoples and ways of thinking and individuality and communities, all of it. Uh, I, I, I turned off my lawnmower at that point and I, I, I got this little retaining wall in the back. I just sat on that wall and just thought about that. Like everything else in God's good and beautiful creation, the diversity, the mosaic of humanity has been corrupted by sin and death and evil, perpetuated by human selfishness and the onslaught of the, of, of, of the Satan, of, of the enemy of God. Lines of distinction, lines of definition that are meant to reflect the beauty of humanity and that are meant to reflect the creative brush stroke of God. These lines have been turned into fault lines, barriers of fear and barriers of hostility and barriers of exclusion. Uh, We've got a whole epoch of human history that points us to this. And here in James chapter 2, James speaks into perhaps the most talked about of all the, deli- of all the dividing lines in the Bible. That is the line between the rich and the poor. A difference, by the way, a distinction, by the way, not created by God, but created by man. The distinction between rich and poor. And in the section of the letter, and in the, in the examples that he gives, James is urging his readers, that would include us, of course, to pay attention to this fault line that we've created. Pay attention. Don't, do not act in this fault line the way the world does. Uh, someone walks into your church, expensive jewelry, expensive clothing, they rolled up in a Rolls Royce. You give them the best seat in the house. And then another person walks in and they smell. They're wearing a bathrobe, sandals, or slippers. And you give, you say, sit here on the floor. That has no place in the church. Tradition tells us that this writing influenced the early church so much that there was a regular practice that if a, um, if a, if a regular attender showed up to, the, to an early church service, uh, you know, an usher would greet them and give them a spot to sit and make sure that, you know, oversee what, what, what's going on. But if someone visited, especially if it was someone who was poor, the bishop himself would go and greet the guest and give them a seat of honor. When I read that this week, um, you know, I was moved by that, convicted by that. 
this is a common theme in the Bible. How is it that we treat those who are rich? How is it that we treat those who are poor? I was reminded this week of this teaching of Jesus, our Lord. I believe it's Luke 14. He says, when you throw a party, when you have a great banquet, don't invite your family and friends because they'll repay you. Instead, uh, when you have a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And then he says this. Do you, do you know what he says next? You may. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And it seems to me, Jesus is saying that the people we invite into our spaces, the people who we celebrate with, that we recline with, the people we invite into our homes to be part of our families, it's a justice issue. It's an issue of righteousness. And God will repay us at the resurrection of the just. Earlier this week, I received a phone call from April Schweikert, and uh, she, April is our um, uh, office manager, and she is our community care coordinator. And she called because she was contacted by the Community Action Center, the CAC. We heard uh, last week um, from Scott Wapita of the CAC. And the CAC asked if we might allow them to do some food distribution in our uh, parking lot. They've been doing this uh, through the summer a, a couple of few different times. And they, um, they distribute food to, to those in our community um, who, who are uh, food insecure and are in need of, of some help when it comes to obtaining food for the, them and their families. And the reason April called me is because um, they had requested to, to distribute the food at around the same time that we're going to have our outdoor service on the 30th, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. And I, uh, if I'm being honest, I went right into logistic mode, you know? Well, when is the traffic coming in and how many people are we expecting and where can people park and, and where will they be doing their food distribution and this and that? And, 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 and maybe we can ask them if, if they can move their time or be flexible about this. And uh, it's not a bad thing to do, I guess. But there was a moment where I, I stopped and April and I kind of, I think, had this sort of uh, similar thing happen where I can best demonstrate it by this or this. Um, and, I, and I said, time out. Time out. I don't know that we should be asking the CAC who want to distribute food to our neighbors and friends to, to do all sorts of flexing and, and changing and so that we can have a, you know, sing some songs together on our lawn. That doesn't seem right. In fact, I said, and I, I think this is true, I said, if we were to do that, I just don't know that our Lord, our King, would be cool with that. 
Let's ask them what, what they need, and we'll go from there. We have to pay attention to the fault lines. I think that's one of the things James is saying. We, we, we have to be uh, eyes wide open when it comes to the fault lines that have been created by, the sin, by sin and by the enemy, Satan. Because the world is very quick to build walls of hostility between our differences. It's just true. The world is very quick to, to uh, demonize the other person who's on the other side of the line, uh, how they might be our enemies. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about an aspect of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that probably doesn't get enough airtime, honestly. When people preach the gospel, I, this is often missing. I'm guilty of this too. Uh, let me just read for you, starting in Ephesians 2, verse 14. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards one another was put to death. Paul goes on in the next line to call it the gospel. I love the way the message puts this. The Messiah has made things up between us so that now we're together on this. Later he says, Jesus started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of humanity being and, and, and a fresh start for everyone. Uh, that's well put. Um, I was listening to this webinar a couple of weeks ago, and it was a couple of uh, black pastors who pastor very kind of multi-ethnic um, congregations. And uh, they were asked the question, what makes it difficult to do this kind of work, to sort of live into that vision of revelation now? And one of the pastors talked about how politics makes it very tough and how news media makes it very difficult. And then he said this, and it, it really struck me. He said, the call of Christ is for all of us, even in all of our differences, to come to the same table, the same blood-soaked table. A reference, of course, to the sacrifice of Jesus. We have to pay attention to the fault lines. It is no surprise to me that when James uh, dives into and starts to talk about the dividing line of rich and poor, 
he immediately talks about the royal law, the law that sets us free. And this, I think, is a reference to the law of Jesus, that is to say, the teachings of our Lord Jesus. It's a reminder of what list of values and priorities are to guide and direct Jesus' followers. In other words, if, if the lines of diversity and distinction become places of fear, places of hostility, discrimination, then we are no longer talking about the reign and rule of Jesus. We're talking about something else. Because Paul makes it clear that the wall of of hostility has been broken down by the blood of Jesus. It's been broken down. And it is no surprise that after this talk of the law of Jesus, that James then talks about the importance of faith in action, or what we often call uh, faith in works. Because without works, without action, James says, faith is lifeless. Real faith, true faith, mature faith can be seen and it can be heard. Isn't that what we see in Abraham and Rahab? I love, again, the way the message translation puts this. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God action is outrageous nonsense? I find it interesting that um, so often this talk of faith and works that we get from James. We talk about it in terms of personal salvation. But it's clear to me that's not what James, uh, that's not the context here. James is talking about faith and works and the context of how we treat rich people and how we treat poor people and how we discriminate against the poor. That's the setting for this conversation of faith and works. To live the gospel in the fault lines requires active faith. And it does no good for the church to be passive and to just hope that divisions will go away. James is calling the church to look and to listen and to pay attention to the fault lines. To live the gospel in the fault lines requires active faith that pays attention and brings action and requires humility. And when James talked about the fault line between the rich and the poor, he got very pragmatic and practical, didn't he? He highlights the words that are spoken to these two uh, uh, people in his example. He highlights what they were wearing. He tells us where the people were seated. It's vivid and pragmatic because these are the things that matter. And if we're going to pay attention to the fault lines, we have to be proactive and pragmatic and practical as well. And it's difficult work. Um, Anyone who's done reconciliation work knows this. The division between men and women, the division between people of color and whites, the division between rich and poor, uh, and the list could go on and on. They are tough places to work, no doubt. And this is why I find verse 13 so striking. 
James tells us that this type of work requires a commitment to mercy. It requires letting go of hostile judgment. Mercy, I, I looked it up, the definition. Mercy is when some, it's within a person's power to punish or harm, but instead they offer compassion and forgiveness to someone. And isn't this what we have received from God in Jesus Christ? When divisions are approached with hostile judgment, that does not reflect the way of the gospel of Jesus enters these places. And what is needed is mercy. Mercy is better than judgment. And mercy brings victory. Let us pray. God, so much more must be said. I know that. But I ask that, that this would be something that speaks to our hearts and our attitudes. And that you would continue to show us the actions you want from us. That we would not say, Lord, Lord, and then not do what you ask but that we would call you Lord because you're our king. And we surrender to you and your ways and your leadings as individuals and as a church. Teach us to be people of mercy. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.